I want to start our time with a question for you all. Uh, the question is this, what are you truly living for? If today was your last day, if this was the last day of your life, what would you be remembered for? For some, it might be all of your financial accomplishments. Uh, for some, it may be all of the achievements that you would have accrued by working hard and grinding and hustling of sorts. Perhaps you may be remembered for your bubbly personality or your kindness and generosity. Or even perhaps you may simply be remembered for who you are connected to as a brother, as a sister, or a son, or a daughter. There are so many things that you and I can be remembered for, but the real question is, when we leave this life, will we be remembered for the right things? It's not that any of those things in and of itself are bad. It's just that we have to wrestle with, are those things alone accurate representations of what God has purposed me to do in this life? You see, all of us will leave behind a legacy. And that legacy will tell a story of what you and I believe to be of most value. It will paint a picture for the things that we held at highest esteem and how we gave all of ourselves for it. You see, the culture, it has no problem determining for us what we should be living for, right? The culture that we find ourselves in is a culture... Uh, who has determined that the most valuable thing or the, most, uh, the greatest thing that you and I can live for is to live for ourselves. Everything is about me and mine. Selfies are billboards to the world to draw attention upon ourselves. Thousands of pictures fill our phone of pictures of just us. In many ways, we care most about our feelings and our thoughts and my needs and my wants. And uh, if two people who are me people get together, they end up making a mess. Because the two me's get together and their primary concern is, I want you to live for me and serve me as opposed to me living to serve you. And when those two people are at odds between who's getting what, then we get conflict. Christianity is not so different. Christianity in many ways has been become less about, and by Christianity I mean primarily here in the West. Christianity has become primarily less about the corporate and collective witness of the people of God, but more so the individual branding and personal platforms that we can accrue for ourselves for God. My brand, my calling, my platform, as opposed to those things being rooted and grounded in a community of faith. If God has purchased you to put you into a family, then to live disconnected from that family, regardless of how gifted or spiritually mature you think you are, is out of line with God's will for your life. The reality is that um, I think sometimes we don't ask the questions about these Christian influencers that are out there that serve God's people, and yet if we would just investigate a little bit further by asking the question, what church do you belong to? What pastors are you submitting to and under your care? What accountability of community do you actually have? 
that God's intention was never for us to be soloists, to live individualistic lives, but rather to be connected to a bigger and broader purpose. Uh, the person who's been gifted with the ability to sing, but has decided that I'm not going to use the gifts that I know God has given me because I don't feel like it. The person who understands that they have gifts that God has clearly given to them that have been affirmed by other people and yet decides, you know what, it's better for me just to sit idly and be served instead of actually serve. I'm not going to show up to Cornerstone Kids when I've committed to because it's about me. I'm not going to serve until I'm offered to actually do the thing that I care most about. We live in a narcissistic culture, y'all. And that culture, it pushes us to bow down to the idols of self-glorification and self-gratification. Uh, I remember watching this interview when Kevin Durant was asked, uh, after winning his first NBA championship, he was asked how it felt to win the chip. And the thing that stood out most to me was as he described, you know, his life and all of the ways that he had given himself to this craft, that he had devoted his life to sharpening his skills and, and, and dedicating and sacrificing all these things to become who he is, the thing that he said was, I thought winning a championship would fill a void, and it didn't. You see, a purpose determined by ourselves will only lead to unfulfillment. But God would have his people to live differently. God would have us to be in the culture and yet live counterculturally. Uh, to not live for self, but to live for God and in service of others. This core value, if you're new to, um, new to us, we've been going through and walking through a core value series uh, where we've identified as a church, we believe God has given us six core values or seven core values that we desire as a family to ask God to help us embody as a church. These are not exhaustive by any means, but these are just a few that we hope that God would press deeply into the character and integrity of our church in such a way that when people encounter members of Cornerstone and they hear about what our value is, they would see that value system being lived out in everyday life. Today, we come upon engaging creativity, and it can be defined as this, that we generate solutions, willingly take risk, encourage curiosity and new ideas learn from mistakes, and constantly strive to move beyond the status quo. We prioritize collaboration over isolation as it takes team effort in order to be effective. Today we'll be in the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah has become one of my favorite books because it is in Nehemiah that we see that Nehemiah was the descendant of a Jew. That he had been taken, his, his father or grandfather had been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar and that his father was born um, and lived in Babylon. All of his education, all of his training came from a city that was primarily foreign for him. And so now this young man, uh, we see here that this young man probably grew up in a household where both his mother and father instilled in him what it looked like to live and serve the living God. It was this boy who understood that both his family were, though they lived in Babylon, though they, they were in a distant land, they were but pilgrims. 
They were but people who were in the midst of Persian culture, however, lived contrary to that culture and according to the very things that God had outlined in his word. This man, Nehemiah, was a cupbearer for a king. When you think of cupbearer, don't think of butler or maid or waitress, but rather think of an honorable position. Think of Nehemiah was the secret service uh, ambassador for the king. He was the one that every single day, day after day, his responsibilities included um, when the king decided to sit down or engage in any type of festivity, the cupbearer's responsibility was to pour the wine and taste it and then pass it along to the king. And that was to ensure that in Persian culture, one of the greatest or easiest ways to uh, overthrow or to um, do a coup d'etat was to poison the king's wine. So each morning, uh, Nehemiah was accustomed to putting his life on the line in service of the king. And this cupbearer was one of great influence, that in order to be a cupbearer, you had to be trusted by the king. They couldn't, they, they, you couldn't be somebody who the king had to look at sideways, sideways to ensure that you were actually tasting the wine. No, this person was a confidant. So Nehemiah has be, been positioned divinely uh, as a servant or a high official in the king's regimen. And what's unique about this situation is that the king here, King Artaxerxes, was the exact same king that we see in Ezra that had sent a work order or, or stop work order out to the, the first rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. So as we read through Nehemiah, imagine yourself being in a position where the very thing that God would call you to do puts you in, a, in the line of great risk if you're going to obey it. Verses 1 through 4, Nehemiah, it says this, the remnant that had survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls had been broken down and its gates have been burned. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I asked the question earlier, what is it that you're living for? And I think the text right here is going to confront some of the desires in our heart, but also make clear ways that we can discern what God's purpose is specifically for you and I. The text opens up here with an announcement of sorts of, the, um, of both the uh, tearing down of a community, but also the brokenness of a people. Uh, the beginning of Nehemiah is God um, really revealing to us that my first point is this, that God's purpose for our lives are often connected to the things that break our hearts. I don't know if you're like me, but I hate being interrupted. I'm a man of, I like routine. I like to wake up at the same time, go to bed at the same time. I like to make my coffee the same way. I like to, I, I, I like to go about my business every single day according to my plans. And when, when interruptions come, they feel like offenses. They feel like attacks, like, man, like, what did I, like, I just want to do what I, what I want to do, right? And the thing that I've had to really wrestle with when I think of interruptions is that my responses to those interruptions often point towards the belief that my life is perfectly orchestrated the way that it should be. That therefore, these disruptions or interruptions are somehow robbing me of something that I feel entitled to. 
I deserve to live the way that I want to live. But not all interruptions are meant to detract from our lives. That some are actually meant to give birth to life. The text begins here by showing us that divine interruptions often become the breeding ground for divine purpose. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And his responsibilities, I'm sure, consumed much of his day-to-day life. He was probably on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And yet being in this palace, though it was a place of comfort, though it was a place of convenience, he was probably exposed to all of the many lavishes of life. Um, It was an unexpected moment in an unexpected way where Nehemiah's everyday life was interrupted by God. And the thing that's dope about this particular book is that when you see God's interruptions, he doesn't give Nehemiah a dream. When you see the interruptions that happen in the life of Nehemiah, he doesn't even speak audibly to Nehemiah. There are instances in the Bible where it says God said and he revealed himself and he sent an angel to communicate his plan and will, but that doesn't take place here. God orchestrates the divine purpose for Nehemiah's life through a casual conversation with a brother. God showed up to his front door. And though this may have been seen as mere coincidence, you and I may say, well, that's just happenstance. He just was in the right place at the right time, and his brother just suddenly showed up. But for people of faith, we understand that God is not a God of coincidences, that God is divine in his ability to appoint a certain situation to happen at a certain time. And it is here that we see that God uses ordinary situations to, com- to completely alter the trajectory of your life. Let me say that again. That God can use ordinary situations to completely alter the trajectory of your life. It's been said that God shows up in mysterious ways, right? That there are things that God does that can't be explained by human reason or human logic. And, and, and the thing that we need to grasp to is that every one of us are but a moment away from God redirecting our paths towards something else. That it really doesn't matter how much work you've put into building your business. God could in a moment say, I'm calling you to someone else, let that go. That it really doesn't matter if you use all your money to relocate into a community that you think is safest and you want your kids to grow up in. God could in a moment say, you know what, sell your home and I'm leading you to the hood that it really doesn't matter the relationships that you've built up for yourself that you think are going to last a lifetime. God could easily say that was for a season. I'm calling you into something different. That there's this reality that for the people of God, um, that God will always position us as his people to be exactly where he wants us to be at the exactly right uh, time for in order to do exactly what he's called us to do. Some may ask, well, is there a better candidate than Nehemiah? Is there not somebody else who may have grown up in that community? Is there not somebody else who got their degree in urban development? Is there not somebody else who has experientially lived a life that resembles the life and experiences that the people were going through? And to those asking that question, I think the Bible says, baby, God don't work like that. Uh, When you understand God, you understand that it's not so much about the gifts that you possess. 
it's not so much about the experiences that you've actually gone through, but it really at the core is about our willingness to say, God, whatever you would have me to do. God, wherever you would have me to go. God, whatever you would desire for me to use my gifts for, I'm willing. That this is what the life of surrenderance looks like. And in reality, a posture of willingness is the very thing that separates the faithful from the phonies. The reality is that in much of what we'll see when you look at people who are faithful, it's not that they were excellent in any way. It's not that they were exceptional in any way. They were just ones that said, you know what, God, I actually believe you to be who you say you are. And if you lead me in a particular direction, God, you know what, I've known you enough about you to know that you're not a liar. I know enough, enough about you, God, to be able to trust you as I step out into the, the unfamiliar waters of what life is usually like. And to say, God, wherever you're leading me is better than where I currently am. Nehemiah is the picture for us of how God shows up in unlikely ways. But the text is trying to convince us of something. It's trying to convince us, y'all, that God's agenda will take place regardless of whether or not we agree to do it or not. There are so many different ways that Nehemiah could have responded to the news, right? Nehemiah's brother tells him, man, the people are in ruin. Nehemiah's brother tells him, yo, the city's walls are destroyed. And what's interesting is how two different people with the exact same information can respond entirely two different ways. The brother shared information and then went about his life as if nothing had happened. The brother shared the news and it was almost as if though he was able to see and be aware of the broken situation that his people were currently in and yet turn a blind eye to pass the news along in the same way that somebody passes a dollar bill for an offering. It's the reality of indifference. And the scary thing for you and I as Christians is that we can at one, minute, at one moment be so on fire for God and then over time, slowly but surely, our hearts grow callous towards the things of God. And the way that it happens is that, that as God is prompting you day in and day out, to live according to his word, to do something that God is calling you to do every time that you push that thing down, every time that you close that ear, every time that you sit on your hands, your heart slowly but slowly but slowly grows harder and harder and harder. And before long, it's not that God isn't calling you to do something. It's just that God's not going to continue to wait for you to do something that somebody else is willing to do. How many times has God put on your heart to pray for somebody, to call and reach out to somebody, and you didn't do it? I'm guilty of it myself. And you didn't do it only to find out that somebody else had said, yeah, God put that person on my heart yesterday, and I talked to them, and I was able to minister for them, minister to them for an hour, and you're just gripped by the reality of, man, God, why was I not willing to respond to the needs of somebody else? These types of responses, they just simply point to some symptoms of our hearts, y'all. And I think for you and I, we've got to be honest about what our hearts really are putting out there in correlation to our actions. That if we were to think of symptoms, 
that a person who runs up a flight of stairs and reaches the top of those stairs and is out of breath, even though it was only 10 stairs, then that's an indication that that person probably is out of shape, right? That if a person lashes out and curses somebody out on the freeway because a car cut them out, then that could be an indication of some anger issues that they need to deal with, right? That if a person uh, lies to cover up poor financial decisions and gets caught, that that could be an indication of loving money more than being honest with other people. Symptoms always point to a greater problem, and it's here that we see the response of one man to be apathetic towards the needs of others and the response of another to hear the news of his people in his hometown being broken and crippled and impenetrable to all our defenseless. And Nehemiah, it says in his text, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. And what we will see in this text is that burden begins at the intersection of our awareness of a need and God's heart towards meeting that need. How much of the things that you think about that God has called you to do or that you're burdened for are burdened simply because you know that when God looks at that issue, his heart bleeds. The burden starts to well up in us when our hearts, however, are connected to the heart of God and as God allows us to see things the way that he sees them, my question would be, what in life has troubled you to the point that if you didn't act upon that thing today, you would feel like you've wasted your life? What if anything keeps you up at night? What if anything keeps you on your knees day in and day out because you know that the way that things are currently right now aren't how they actually should be? It's these times where we're able to start to get clues, context clues to God's purpose for our lives, that, that what troubles you, that the very thing, if you want to understand God's purpose for you, that the very thing that troubles you makes other people comfortable. If you want to know that if God has put a divine burden in your life, It's usually in the place where other people who should have that very same burden don't. The origins of this church didn't start because John, myself, and Tripp got in a room. We said, yo, we want to plant a church. The origins of this church began because if we, as we looked and were confronted with the landscape of our city, we realized that there were places and pockets in the city of Atlanta that were virtually unreached and undesirable to the majority of our, of our city. There were pockets of people who had been pushed to the margins of the city and left without resources, networks, and even just general concern to make sure that their well-being was taken care of. And when we were confronted by other Christians with the reality of you don't plant churches and communities like that, because you can't make enough money to sustain you. When you're confronted with those types of statements from Christians who are called to be the church, who are called to actually be the first ones to enter into those spaces, you begin to ask the question, what are we living for? 
You begin to ask the question, is the gospel that we proclaim actually as powerful as we say it is? Because if the gospel is powerful, then that means that it should do work in you and I's hearts in such a way that we are the first responders to the mess of this world. We began to assess the reality that most churches in our city are simply places that Christians drive into on a Sunday morning and drive back out that afternoon. That we often treat inner city communities like landing strips as opposed to homes. We fly in and we fly out and we go about our business. And we say a lot of good things about how we care about our neighbors and things like that. But the reality is that in our declaration, in our commitment to live for the Lord and to live out these values of really thinking through, God, what are solutions to the needs in our communities? I think we fail to realize that with every calling comes a test. That what God will do in a lot of times is he will say, I'm going to see if your words line up with your actions. I'm going to see if what you're saying you care about is actually what you care about. Because actions speak louder than words, right? Um, I'm thankful that God interrupted you and I's plans to bring us to this place at this particular time in this particular community. And if you think about your own personal walks with the Lord, then you and I both know that the reason you're a Christian is because God interrupted your way of life. You didn't find God, God found you. And as a result, your life's trajectory was probably a lot different than you were probably planning or expected it to be, right? Uh, when we think about interruptions, I think this quote, especially the work that God has called us to do here, I think this quote rings true about how we should see God's divine purposes lived out through his people. And it says this, that the world of natural human relationships is God's world and not the devil's. And if the devil has intruded into it, there is all the more need that it should be occupied by the earnest soldiers of God. Pietism may say, never mind the condition of the walls of Jerusalem. Souls are grand concern. But in point of fact, the condition of the walls may sometimes affect the condition of souls. Things external often stand in subtle relation to things spiritual. The body influences the mind, and the outward conditions of national existence may stand in the closest connection with the religious life of a people. Uh, God gives his people new hearts and new ways to think about things so that in our everyday lives we can strive to put a picture out to the rest of the world of a God who says, I understand exactly how things are, but that's not how things will remain. That there's a day coming where you and I, we hold up into, our, uh, looking into our hope of eternity and say there will be a time where God comes and make his dwelling place on earth. That there will be a time where his kingdom uh, will not be far off, but it will be near and he will be with us. That there will be a time where there'll be no more pain and no more hurt and no more tears and no more grief or loss. That there will be a time where all those things pass away. But God has not called you and I, brothers and sisters, to simply sit on our hands waiting for that day. But he's called us to use these hands and put them to the plow and to cultivate 
in the world right now, a visible and tangible picture of the kingdom to come. Our purpose for, God's purpose for our lives is connected to the things that break our hearts and they are intended to drive us to give up, give up our lives for the benefits of others. My point two is God's purposes drive us to give our lives for the benefits of others. If we're going to commit to seeking meaningful, meaningful situations for the benefit of others, we're going to have to understand one thing, y'all. It's going to cost us everything. It's going to cost us. Nehemiah 2 through 5, after Nehemiah had prayed, after Nehemiah had fasted, after Nehemiah had asked for a favor from God with the king, it had been now roughly 90 days since that moment. And now in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, an opportunity presents itself. And it says, during the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And it says, I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens, uh, the God of the heavens, and, the, and answered the king. If it so pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. Uh, serving God is costly. Uh, to go against the culture of the king uh, was risky business. Uh, when the king turned to Nehemiah and said, Hey, bro, what's wrong with you, man? You look sad. That that was in that moment uh, a time of where all of life flashed before his eyes. Because Nehemiah understood that by being sad in the presence of a king could actually cost him his very life. That in the snap of a fingers, the king could have said off with his head, find me somebody else. Uh, but I love my favorite verse actually in this section is not... Um, that God answered Nehemiah's prayer, but it's that in fear, and I was overcome with fear. If you look closely to the text, you'll find that there's no period after he says, I was overcome with fear. That the sentence keeps on going by saying, and I responded to the king. And what this points to is that the reality of God calling us into something doesn't mean that there's an absence of fear. It just means that fear's power over us doesn't have to keep us from doing what God's called us to do. Rubber meets the roads when our prayer requests require something of us. How many of us have prayed for patience and then God gives us opportunity to exercise patience? And then we say, God, I'm not praying for that anymore. How many times have we asked for an open door at our job, but when the boss asks us, uh, well, what, uh, what salary compensation are you looking for? Uh, we cower and we ask for something far less than we actually had been praying for. Uh, how many of us have had asked for opportunities to share our faith with family members? And when a family member asks us, hey, I was reading this Bible verse and I really didn't know what it means. We're preoccupied with doing something else. 
Uh, rubber meets the road when our prayers require something of us. And God, in meeting Nehemiah's prayers, he was going to require a step of faith. He was going to require Nehemiah to say, Nehemiah, I heard your request, um, but I'm going to only open the door for you. I'm not going to force you through it. Um, so much of what it looks like to enter into the fray of being willing to lay our lives down for other people means that we're going to have to be willing to get our, out of our comfort zones. We're going to have to be willing to do things and to lay things aside that make us uncomfortable. Why are you sad? Nehemiah, you don't look sick. Why are you sad? To which Nehemiah responds with, may the king live forever. And why should I not be sad when my people are in distress? There's this greater purpose that Nehemiah has in mind that's bigger than himself. And when you understand God's purpose for your life and you're able to see it as something bigger than yourself, then that means that all of the risks that are apart or attached to the calling that God's placed on your life pale in comparison to just being faithful to Jesus. Do you think that anyone wants to bring their family into a dangerous situation? Do you think that people want to uproot their lives here in America and move to some foreign place where there's no electricity, there's no water, there's no uh, vehicles, there's no house to live in, there's no, none of those things, but they're committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greater picture that Nehemiah has in mind and the greater picture that you and I must have in mind is that the risk of simply obeying what God wants us to do is far, um, is of lesser value than the impact our disobedience has on the heart of God. Are you more fearful at your job of offending people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ than you are fearful of God and the discipline that he gives his children for walking in disobedience? Are you more fe fearful of selling a home and moving somewhere that maybe God has been leading you and your family to than you are knowing and living with the reality that God has, there's a restlessness there inside of you that you're living with day in and day out because your conscience bears witness to your defiance. I was overwhelmed by fear. And the reality is being faithful to God will potentially cost us our jobs, potentially cost us relationships, potentially cost us uh, status, potentially even cost us our lives. But the good news, y'all, is that God doesn't call us into something alone. The text goes on, and the rest of the chat, we're just going to breeze through this. The rest of two is after Nehemiah asked for all the material quests from God of saying, God, uh, King, I need this, I need this, I need this. Give me letters. Give me equipment. I need, I need to rebuild these walls. 11 through 20 really is where, um, and a special emphasis on verse 17 where he says, 
So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that they will no longer, or so that we will no longer live in disgrace. And I told them how gracious, how the gracious hand of the Lord had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hand was strengthened to do this work. Uh, Collaboration, y'all, simply acknowledges that there's value in other people. That God has not given you everything that you need to accomplish his plan. He's actually positioned you to need the help and assistance of other brothers and sisters of Christ. The reality for our church is that the pastors in and of themselves cannot do the work of the ministry. We don't have enough hours in the day to both uh, devote ourselves to equipping the saints, to ministering to the needs of the people, and to actually be doing the tangible work in the everyday lives. But we rejoice in in the reality that God has given a clear picture and vision for his church. But we rejoice in the many members who have said, you know what, I believe I'm called to that very same purpose. And the thing that we uh, strongly desire is for you all to feel the courage to pick up the plow. That when you look at your life, stop looking at it from the standpoint of the material things that you can acquire. Stop looking at it from the standpoint of of, of suppressing giftings and leadership skills and, and abilities that you know are there, but you are simply tucking underneath your seat and waiting for something else to do. We are no different than you all. I was thinking during worship about those that serve in Cornerstone Kids, and I'm just so grateful for the many of you all that serve our kids. And I was just reminded that Cornerstone Kids is not a place where we provide daycare. Uh, those people over there are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that those children who don't know Jesus yet are each and every Sunday being ministered to and taught about this God that we sing about in here every single Sunday. And they have the same opportunity as us on stage in the quiet room where they're nestled up with a little child who may be crying, and they're able to pray and speak maybe small and simple words of encouragement reminding them of God's faithfulness. That's not lesser work. You don't have to be on a stage in order to have impact for God's kingdom. You don't have to have a thousand, a hundred thousand Instagram followers to have impact for God's kingdom. You don't have to be traveling the world speaking at conferences to have impact for God's kingdom. God has already ordered your steps. That means that before the foundations of the world, before you breathe your first breath, God already had purpose over your life. Plans for you and I to simply walk into. You know the best ministry? The dopest ministry is when God gives you alley-oops. When you're going about your day and God just places someone in your way unexpectedly and they ask you about Jesus... Y'all, that's light work. But there's something about that, right? When you unexpectedly get to tell somebody about the one you love the most, that starts to do something in your soul. And it's like, yo, like, God, I've, I've been distracted. I, I, I've, I've climbed off the wall. 
I've, I've gotten concerned about and consumed about things that really don't matter. And this reminder was a measurement of your grace towards me, that you wouldn't allow me to stay in my distracted state, that you would interrupt me and you would bring me to a place where I said, you know what, God, I want more of those opportunities. You know what, God, I want to live more faithful. I want to strive to make every moment of my life count towards him. And it's in those moments when we realize that when God feels different, he's actually not that far away. Uh, love will always require us to sacrifice something. It's not love if it doesn't require sacrifice. One of the things that I was thinking about was we come up to next year as a church and we look at our budget. If you do the calculations that if every member in this church committed to simply giving a thousand more dollars a year, if you break that down, that's $83 a month. Actually, it's 82.2589, something like that, but it's roughly $83 a month, $23 a week. That at the end of the year, that little sacrifice of a meal, sacrifice of a couple cups of Starbucks coffee, uh, would snowball into over $300,000 that the church could use in order to serve this neighborhood. That as we took calculations on how much would it cost for us to renovate one of those houses? $250,000. And yet we're getting texts from neighbors complaining about homeless people living on the porches of those homes. The calling of God will always put you in the middle, uh, oftentimes, of opposition. Let us not think that just because Nehemiah was called into this great work that there wasn't great opposition against the work that God wanted to do. Some of the spiritual warfare that you and I as a family have been experiencing on the last, on the last few months have been a direct result of God wanting to do something through this people to ultimately change the trajectory and re-alter the lives of people in this neighborhood that we are completely unaware need Jesus. We can't do that, though, without one another. We can't strive to live out rep as representatives and witnesses of our king unless each one of us says, I'm going to put my hand to the plow. Collaborations is an acknowledgement that there's value in one another, that we are all members of God's body. But as we look at Nehemiah, we realize that Nehemiah is just a man. And though he was just a man that was willing to give up his life to rebuild the walls of a city so that people could turn back home where they could experience peace and security and rest where they ultimately could be with God, Nehemiah was just a man. And that city was, though it even was rebuilt, the walls were still penetrable. They weren't permanent. And yet Nehemiah gave himself to the brokenness of those people and the brokenness of his community. And like Nehemiah, he lived in a, king, a kingdom and he worked alongside a king. However, Nehemiah was just a man. But there's a greater man who was seated up high and lived in an eternal palace and kingdom and was right by the right hand of God. And this man, Jesus Christ, looked upon 
us people, broken, destitute, lost, destined for eternal destruction. And this Jesus looked upon that situation and his heart broke. And he whipped, he wept, and he felt the anguish of what, exi- what was existing, but what shouldn't be. And it was this Jesus who uh, left the comforts of his heavenly home and came down to you and I. He's the one that came down to us while we were still yet sinners, meaning that we didn't have our lives together. Uh, we had no intention on choosing him, and yet he still came. And if there were a few people who understood what the words of that song meant when we say that it is Jesus who has saved us, it is Jesus who has redeemed us, then I'd probably have a few more people up in here that are willing to shout out to God and thank him for the mercy that they've experienced. It was this Jesus who came down to us. And he came down to, break, to repair the ruptured relationships that we had with God. He came down to fix and to finally defeat our truest enemy in opposition to where he could stand up and yell on that rugged cross, it is finished. But the story doesn't stop just there. Uh, Not only did he yell, it was finished, but then he rose up three days later. And in him raising up three days later, uh, we find out in the good book that this Jesus rose up with all power, rose up with all might, and declared to the, to, to the entire world, uh, there is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. No death can hold, withhold, or keep you from God. No sin can keep you from God. Nothing can keep you from God because Jesus became the bridge for us. And it is in him being the bridge that he extends the offer to everyone. That if you would trust in him, then that picture of a kingdom that will reside on earth in Revelations, that you can be declared as royalty, that you can experience God as a son, as a daughter, and not an enemy. This is the good news of the gospel, that we don't have to fix ourselves up in order to be loved by God. He sent someone down to live the life that you and I couldn't so that our lives could be tethered to his purposes and that we could find fulfillment and satisfaction not in things, not in self, but in God alone. This is the call to you and I to say, let's keep following Jesus. Let's keep trusting him. And let's let the words of a familiar song fill our lives till all they see is is you, Lord. Is you, Lord. Fill our lives till all they see is you, Lord. Glorify your name in us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that solutions aren't birthed in our minds, Lord, but they're given to us through the wisdom that you provide your people. I pray that we would hold higher than anything this world can tell us is worth living for, that we would hold you in the highest place in our hearts, that we would be willing to lay everything down for your sake, 
and for others' sake and for your glory. Father, I pray that for those in us right now that are wrestling with maybe some prodding and some probing that you're doing in our hearts, Father, would we humble ourselves in submission? Would we recognize that simply surrendering to you is not losing much? It's actually the pathway towards great gain. Would we view this surpassing life, this life that is here and now? Would we view every breath that you've given us thus far and every breath that you will give us? Will we view that as something to be stewarded? Something to be taken into consideration that it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to you. And would you show us ways that you, that you have equipped us already, that you have prepared us unbeknownst to ourselves, Lord, for the work that you're calling us into. And for those that are unsure, Father, I pray that you would push us to our knees, that we would be like Nehemiah, as those who pray and fast and bring ourselves and everything we have to, the, to your feet and say, God, use it all as you please. And that Lastly, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to walk in that, to know that you move and reveal your will in our lives often through with the things that burden us. And Father, would we be resilient as a people to look at what the culture tells us is important and to display and declare something completely different. I don't need to live for myself because I've entrusted myself to a good God. It is in your matchless name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things.